welcome to Regeneratively Speaking, a podcast brought to you by the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm Katherine Drinkett. And I'm Joshua Huntsberger. In each episode, we bring you interviews with guest researchers and our institute's faculty covering the latest cutting-edge research on regenerative medicine. Today we have Gail Naughton, who currently serves as CEO and Chairman of the Board of Histogen. Dr. Naughton is a leader in the field who has over 25 years of experience in tissue engineering, holds more than 100 U.S. and foreign patents, and is also extensively published on the topic. Welcome. So excited to have you with us today. We were hoping you could start off this podcast with telling us a little bit about your past experience at Advanced Tissue Sciences where you were the company's co-founder and co-inventor of its core technology. With this company, you oversaw the design and development of the world's first upscaled manufacturing facility for tissue engineered products. Please tell us a little bit more about this experience. Oh, great to be part of this, so thank you. Advanced Tissue Sciences was actually started in the mid-80s when I made the discovery that if you put cells on a three-dimensional scaffold, they actually grow much more like a tissue, much more than you would have when you're just growing them on a flat plate. It was really serendipity, a little bit of an accident, the way the discovery was made, but it was just exciting to be able to be part of a new and growing industry that really had the potential to revolutionize how patient care is given. So while at Advanced Tissue Sciences, I was fortunate to have three products approved by the FDA. One was for partial and full thickness burns, Uh, The second was for severe diabetic ulcers, very often on the brink of leading to an amputation. And the third was was a soft tissue filler. So to be able to go and really see the impact you can have on the patients with products that were the first of a kind is was just something that was a blessing to be part of. So Dr. Naughton, you also had success as an inventor, and we know in 2002 you were awarded the 27th annual National Inventor of the Year Award by Intellectual Property Owners Association for work done in the field of tissue engineering. Do you have any advice for our young scientific inventors? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the first thing is trust your gut. I can't tell you how many times while working on the products in advanced tissue, I was told what you're doing is impossible. You're Dr. Frankenstein and all of that. It was so crazy that our company motto became accomplishing the impossible ahead of schedule, and we would give out little awards with that tag (laughs) saying on it. So the, the biggest advice I could say is if you believe that you have something that's important, get the best mentors, the best advice you can, but don't give up on it because chances are you're gonna have the great, great next invention. The second thing is to learn about patents. If you're not gonna be able to get the funding, without knowing that there's some strong patents behind it. Very often we present or publish before we put in for the patent, which means you'll never get a patent. Those patents are really, really important, so learn what you can about the process, even just putting in a small disclosure to be able to activate that patent. Even if you don't have any funds, you could do it for a couple of hundred dollars. So keep the passion, trust your gut, and absolutely be able to protect your work through various patents. Where did you first learn about um, patents? Was that something that you initiated, or were there particular resources that you sought out, or were there particular mentors that helped guide you? Well, I have to tell you, this is a great funny story, because when I first made the invention while at a medical center, um, I took the data and the photos down to the head of the license department, showed them to him, and I said, I really do think 
growing tissue outside of the body has this great potential. We can test new drugs. We can go potentially even have impact on transplantation. He looked me in the eye and said, if it was a good idea, someone would have thought of it already. <laughs> and it would have been easy to give up then. But he signed away all patent rights to me. And I said, well, right now I have an obligation to figure out how to develop them. And I basically went to a, a couple of different um, uh, textbooks, because there were no online courses yet. That was the mid-'80s. And we sought, sought out some free patent advice and was able to get the rudimentary outline of what I needed to do to at least get the life of a patent started, which is basically you could do a one-pager about your invention, submit that, have it as record, so you're the inventor of record. Uh, there are a lot of attorneys out there that will do pro bono services, especially if it's exciting technology, and they feel that you have the potential to be able to raise money, whether through grants or private investments at some point. So the help is there. Right now, any major university that has an entrepreneurial management center will definitely have the resources to get, tell you everything there is to know to start these patents and get things solidified. Great. That's actually a nice segue into this um Next uh, question. So training our next leading scientists and entrepreneurs to advance this field is important. We know that at San Diego State University from 2002 to 2011, you were the dean of College of Business Administration and assisted with making this campus the first in the nation to found a joint Ph.D. and MBA in life sciences. Why do you think having such a program is important in today's scientific climate? I absolutely believe that scientists are great at what they do, but just think about it. We could spend lots and lots of years through graduate school and never have one business course. Yeah. Every business major has biology and chemistry along the way, if not in elementary school, at least in high school. You can get your Ph.D. without one business course. And so to be able to go and help teach the fundamentals of business to scientists, whether or not they want to start their own company or be part of a company or just stay in academia is really key. Scientists are smart. They're going to get the business stuff quickly, but you have to be able to expose them to the actual accounting principles, finance pr principles, etc., marketing principles, business plan productions, to be able to give them the tools they need in order to go and see how their inventions can move forward just be able to go and actually become products. Yeah. And we also know that in, in addition to your Ph.D. in basic medical sciences, you also acquired your executive MBA. How has that assisted with your own career development, and what recommendations do you have for scientists considering this uh, dual path, whether or not they should? Well, I got my MBA long after I got my Ph.D., and quite frankly, it was out of frustration. I was president of a publicly traded company that I had started, and even though I had reached that level, I still had business people in the company who would treat me just as a scientist and ignore any of my business ideas, basically saying to me, learning the business on the fly isn't good enough. So I knew that if I got the former business training, and in my case it was from UCLA, a really reputable MBA program, that not only would I get more exposure to different types of business and business solving skills, but be able to get more credibility among the non-scientists yeah. in the business community, and it actually worked. It helped me expand my thinking. I was able to learn business principles outside of just science-related businesses, and it really helped gain me the respect 
from uh, my colleagues, my business colleagues. What we found with the MBA PhD program is these students, once they graduate, are bombarded with offers from industry, particularly San Diego, big life science industries. Yeah. Companies in the life science area are just craving someone who knows the science, can speak the science to not only scientists but on a lay person level, as well as understand how to balance a budget and how to do market projections, et cetera. It is a tremendous dual skill set that's in very much demand. Great. And what would be your recommendation if someone has the flexibility to go for their MBA right after getting their PhD? Is that something that, that you would recommend? Or does it make more sense to gain a little bit more um, industry experience and then five, ten years down the road when you're in a more senior position going for that MBA. Is there any advice you'd give? Sure. So so most MBA programs are targeting people who've already had a couple of years of world, world working experience. Um, that works very well because you're bringing your experience into class with you too and you're able to play on your experiences whether you're still a full-time employee or whether you've taken time off to go to school. That being said, the program that we developed, the dual degree program, was novel in that instead of doing a traditional master's thesis, your master's thesis was actually doing a business plan mm. for the scientific invention that you were working on for your PhD. And as part of your PhD thesis, you had to show how, in fact, you were going to bring this product or service to the marketplace either on your own or throughout out licensing. So it was an immersion in dealing with people in the industry yeah. who have been there, done that before, and you actually saw your own invention become a product. So that was a, a really novel yeah. type of uh, experience. And I should say there are quite a few products that are on the market right now. I wish I had, I had taken a royalty when they became students. <laughs> you presented at the World's Stem Cell Summit in early December, two sessions titled Tissues to Organs. These back-to-back -back sessions covered the challenges, priorities, and progress in tissue and organ bioengineering. What are some of the top bioengineering challenges that were covered during these sessions? Well, some of the challenges are we still have hurdles in terms of knowing how to manufacture a very reproducible uh, cell-based product. There are still challenges to figure out what to test for to make sure that that product has the best chance of showing efficacy once it's put into a patient. Right now there are limited cell markers, there are limited bioassays developed to help say, okay, the cell looks good, will it actually stand a good chance of helping this person? That is, that is a really important uh, thing that we all need as an industry to solve. The second thing, many tissues and cell-based products can benefit from having a cryopreservation that is really going to maintain the metabolic uh, activity of the cell and tissue. And there's been very, very little over the last two decades that has been done to improve the ability for a tissue to be preserved, whether it's frozen or just kept in suspended animation, and then to recover fully prior to being delivered to the patient. So a lot more work needs to be done there as well. And right now there are very few um, cell culture medias out there that have been optimized to grow a large number of cells and tissues. 
So you use one for melanocytes right now and one for hematopoietic cells and one for mesenchymal stem cells, et cetera, to be able to have a more uniform, um, well-defined media that can be used for cell growth that we can all use during the clinic and once on the market, I think would be a benefit. And the World Stem Cell Summit brings together various stakeholders in the field ranging from industry, academia, the government, and patient advocates. Why is this so critical for advancing the field, in your opinion? Oh, and absolutely. In any field that has advanced rapidly, you have seen that the voice of the patient advocates is really key, not only for the regulatory authorities, but for getting the product ultimately reimbursed as well. And to be able to have a general awareness of the population of what's going on. I mean, you talk about stem cells, it could be scary. People who don't understand what they are kind of feel like you're going to create this giant tomato spewing growth factors going down some major intersection and killing people. So to have a basic <laughs> understanding, well, think about it. To have, the, to have a, the basic understanding that what we're doing is just learning from the body on how to grow cells that you normally have and grow them into a tissue or organ that's just going to be replacement therapy. People aren't scared about replacement therapy. They know that if you're diabetic and you take human insulin, you do much better. They know that if you are not growing well, you take human growth hormone. It's really going to help you reach a normal height. So if you don't present this as a scary thing, but either saying, look, we are just replacing what you no longer have, either because of disease or accident, that is a tremendous educational point for people to be able to have patients understand that, the patient's families understand that, the physicians, the general public understand that, and then work together to say, okay, we get it now. This is why we need it. This is why we need more grant funding for the area. This is why we need more public funds and private funds for the area. And this is why we need the government regulatory patents reimbursement to all work closely together to get these products to the people who need them. So your current company, Histogen, is a regenerative medicine company. Histogen is developing therapies based upon products of cells grown under stimulated embryonic conditions. Could you tell our audience about some of the current products in your portfolio and some of their applications? You bet. We found out at my former company that fibroblasts are really smart cells. They grow well, they respond to their environment. And so we basically said the fetal environment is such a wonderful environment where you have these stem cells rapidly dividing, you have complete scarless healing, and you have controls to prevent cancer. What happens if we try to mimic that environment outside the body? And so we took these newborn cells, which are very plastic, they can go backwards easily, grew them under the embryonic conditions and found out that the soluble growth factors that they make are extraordinarily good at stimulating stem cells in your own body. So we basically deliver that cocktail to any area where we want to regenerate. The lead product in development is for hair growth because when you inject it into the scalp to the hair follicles that are dying or miniaturized, we wake up the stem cells and we have short-term and long-term significant new hair growth. If you deliver it, for instance, to a damaged piece of bone or cartilage, they'll stimulate your own mesenchymal stem cells to be able to grow new tissue there. The same is true of the extracellular matrix that's made at the same time. So basically, by mimicking nature, 
just going backwards and trying to make these cells into multipotent stem cells under embryonic conditions, we're able to go and harvest the soluble and insoluble products for a number of aesthetic and therapeutic uh, areas. Right now, we're getting into a later stage clinical trial for hair growth for men, an earlier trial for women, but also this coming year, we're looking to use our extracellular matrix product to go into full thickness cartilage bone defects within the knees, which is an important therapeutic area, and are advancing our oncology therapeutics as well. So right now we're focused on aesthetics first and foremost, then orthopedics and oncology through separate joint ventures. And for the hair regrowth product, how, how long will people have to wait before that is uh, potentially on the market? Are we talking two years or five years? What are your projections? It depends country by country. In the United States, we are getting ready to do a phase 2B dosing study, and then we're going to have to have also a very large, probably 300-patient phase 3 study to follow that. In certain countries, uh, including Korea and Mexico, we've been given the green light to go right into a phase three study, which means that products, if all goes well, could be approved within a two-year period of time. Given the fact that we're talking about medical aesthetic tourism, we believe that people will fly just about anywhere if they can afford it for a one or two-time treatment that'll have long-lasting results. So our last question we have for you, where do you see the field of tissue engineering in 25 years? I believe that in 25 years, and I hope we're all going to have lots of hair. We're all going to have lots of hair. <laughs> Absolutely. I believe that we're going to have dozens of products on the market, not only being able to provide benefits for healing, but I truly believe that we're going to be offering cures, cures that synthetic molecules and, and other materials cannot offer right now because we're just not going to be translating an acute condition to a chronic condition. We're going to be able to, along with the body's remarkable regenerative uh, forces that it has be able to fix what was damaged, whether it's uh, due to disease or to an accident or to just age. So I truly believe, and I intend to be around here 25 years from now to see it happen and uh. be completely regenerated. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Be sure to listen next time for the latest in regenerative medicine. This podcast is a production of Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, part of Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. For more information, visit our website at www.wfirm.org or follow us on Facebook or Twitter at WFIRM News.